This is Innovating a Bright Future. Hello and welcome back. I'm Avery Kreiwalt from Innovating a Bright Future, where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technology driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. If you've been here since the first episode, first of all, thank you, and second of all, congratulations, because after this, there are only two episodes left. This is an interesting one. I'm talking to Greg Kist from Blue X Energy about carbon capture, and we mostly focus on the uses of carbon capture in natural gas and hydrogen. We also look at how carbon capture can greatly lessen the climate impact of natural gas, especially in comparison to coal. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the show, Greg Kist. You are the co-founder of Blue X Energy, which is a Calgary-based company. It's right near my hometown of Airdrie. And you're working on carbon capture and storage with a little bit of the uh, hydrogen production thrown in there as well. So do you want to give me a little bit of a rundown on what's the vision of Blue X Energy? Sure. Thanks, Avery. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Yeah. BlueX Energy started up about eight to 10 months ago, a colleague from a former business life and myself got together, felt we had something to contribute to this whole new and evolving space called carbon capture. Uh, We felt that there was a real opportunity to apply the skill sets that we had to help industry develop carbon storage opportunities. Carbon capture isn't necessarily new but capturing carbon and storing it in deeper aquifers or deeper reservoirs is something that is frankly new. And it's about putting our technologies to work in figuring out new and innovative ways to capture, transport, and ultimately store carbon for you know industries in Alberta that are going to require more and more access to more and more storage as industries look to decarbonize. It's very interesting to see some of the things surrounding carbon capture because there seems to be a bit of different opinions on how important is it, how big of a focus is it, do we need to be looking into more carbon capture when we're starting to implement more renewable energy or not. These are all questions that are coming up more and more as carbon capture and storage is coming more into the public light, I would say. I've done a little bit of research into this, but I'm sure you know quite a bit more than me. So what is the general process kind of behind carbon capture and storage? It's pretty straightforward. Obviously, what we're trying to do as industries, when we talk about decarbonization, is ultimately removing the carbon dioxide, which we obviously consider to be harmful to the environment in large concentrations. And so industry produces a lot of carbon dioxide as part of its processes, whether you're burning natural gas or coal to generate electricity uh, in industrial processes. So carbon dioxide is created from those processes. The question now is how do we capture that carbon dioxide? What form do we capture it in and how do we get to a place that we can securely store it for the long term? So when you think about carbon capture utilization and storage, which is what people oftentimes talk about, and you'll hear the acronym CCUS, 
There's all sorts of technologies that are being developed to capture the carbon. Somewhere they're actually capturing the carbon directly from the air. Others are capturing carbon directly from the flu stack off of an industrial process. Others are capturing the carbon by making hydrogen where they take natural gas and break it into its component parts and take the carbon dioxide. So that's the capture part of it. That's a technology that are evolving very quickly. They have to be in a scale that's suitable for large-scale deployment in industry. So we see this continuing to evolve. We see many more companies coming into this space, bringing new technologies uh, to bear. Governments are making those investments or encouraging those investments through various incentives. So there are these few different methods of carbon capture. The first one, and the one we're talking about the most in this conversation, is industrial capture, which basically means using filtering technologies and chemical processes to remove carbon dioxide from the airborne emissions that are created by things like burning natural gas to melt metal or glass, or really any energy or heat-intensive industry like that. The second is the generation of hydrogen from natural gas. And hydrogen can be formed from other fossil fuels like coal, but natural gas is definitely the best because it produces the least amount of carbon. Basically, this method of carbon capture involves using a process called steam reforming, which is pretty intense, using quite a bit of energy to actually carry it out, turning CH4, which is methane or natural gas, into a bunch of little H's, hydrogen. In theory, this hydrogen can be used in much the same way as natural gas normally would, and the waste product of steam reforming, CO2, could be transported to a safe storage facility. Finally, we have direct air capture, which is definitely my favorite method because it doesn't require any generation of CO2 whatsoever. Climeworks is probably the easiest example to name and research, so I'll put a link to their website in the show notes for you to learn more. Direct air capture uses similar technologies to the industrial capture, except it just pulls in normal air, filters and draws out carbon, stores it in filtering systems, and then sends the air back out with very much less carbon content. Then we're actually transporting that carbon dioxide to a place where we can securely store it over the long term. So we ourselves as Blue X Energy are not necessarily going to be involved directly in the carbon capture part of it. We're really looking to work with people who are already capturing that carbon or have a technology that they want to employ. And ultimately, once they've captured that carbon, we want to transport that to a safe and secure storage place for, for obviously long-term sequestrations. And I think I should mention here that I said it's getting bigger and bigger as time goes on. I think that mostly applies to the direct air capture that we're seeing now. One of the big companies, they're employing these direct air capture plants that are basically just taking in the air, filtering out the carbon, and then pushing the air back out. Climeworks is one of those companies that's doing that. These carbon capture technologies that are directly on fossil fuel plants or industrial processes, those are a little bit more advanced to my knowledge. Yeah, that's correct. I think carbon capture has been happening for a long time. Certainly here in the province of Alberta, the oil and gas industry, the energy industry has been finding new and innovative ways to get rid of all of its emissions. Initially, it was the removal of sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxide. And now that we understand the effects of CO2, we're figuring out ways to get rid of that as well. 
We're really working with those industrial companies. We're working with energy producers to figure out ways to allow them to either use hydrogen in their processes or to actually continue to use natural gas, but capture the CO2 after the natural gas has been combusted. As you said, Avery, it's not new. It's just the kind of scale we're talking about and actually can we get to 100% of the captured off the flue stack from these industrial processes. I think it's pretty encouraging. Those numbers are actually pretty high at like 80-90% is already pretty good. If we could get to 100% and wipe out those emissions completely from these plants that have implemented carbon capture and storage, That's definitely a positive, and there shouldn't really be a debate on whether or not we should be using this. These technologies are becoming more available, more mainstream. The economics are improving all the time. I think companies are just recognizing the need to move this way. And so when you have industrial processes that have waste products, you've got to deal with those. There's an environmental consequence there, and that has to be dealt with. We recognize that the scale of carbon that needs to be captured in the province of Alberta is very large in order for us to meet our commitments both to Canada as a country and then ultimately as a country to our Paris climate commitments. And Western Canada has a history of enhanced oil recovery projects where they're actually using waste CO2 to improve oil recovery. But for us as a company, what we're looking at is actually putting that carbon into deep saline aquifers, deep geologic horizons that will ensure that that carbon dioxide does not come back to surface, ever. I know that one of the kind of methods of the storage side of this, when I was looking into it, is like you said, using CO2, captured CO2, and then just pumping that into old oil wells to get more oil out of the ground and then leaving the CO2 there, also called enhanced oil recovery. And that is a solution. A lot of companies are doing that. It just seems a little bit counterintuitive. If decarbonization is our goal, it's easier for it to escape when it's in those kind of situations than in those deep underground aquifers that you guys are working on. And at the same time, the secondary goal is to pump more fossil fuels out of the ground. That's the challenge of transitioning in energy, right? And recognizing that, you know, as we make these transitions to a cleaner and cleaner economy, uh, this will take time to happen. So enhanced oil recovery and using CO2 certainly is a method for now, and it can be. But I think over the longer term, there is a recognition that companies will want the assurance that when they pull that CO2 out of their industrial processes, Can they be confident that that CO2 has been put into a geologic horizon where it never, ever again escapes to the atmosphere? And so this is where, you know, the deep saline aquifers, I think, are going to be one of the great answers to where do we put large volumes of of CO2? Large volumes of CO2 will happen as we decarbonize, largely because many people are talking about hydrogen. Hydrogen is most ubiquitous in methane, which is natural gas. When that natural gas is cracked, if you will, and we're left with hydrogen and carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide's got to go somewhere again. So when we think about our entire processes, there's not just this technical process of getting it into the ground. There's the long term, how do we monitor? How do we verify? How do we report? not only ourselves as a company, but to the companies that we're serving in terms of taking away their carbon dioxide and how do you assure the public and governments that 
it is safe. It is sequestered for the long term. And so those are those are big elements that will evolve over time. But certainly that's front of mind for us as, as we think about uh, storage of carbon. I think that's a good point to make that we want that assurance. I think that will be especially relevant with the more direct air capture, just because that that is like 100% of their mission and their business. They're taking CO2 directly out of the air. If you aren't taking care of it properly and making sure it stays that way, then what's even the point? What are some of the limitations of this storage system and carbon capture in general? Where can this stuff be built? What are the requirements? And what are some of the biggest challenges to implementing this technology? There's several areas. Obviously, from a carbon capture standpoint, those technologies continue to evolve and we'll see them continue to evolve. But once you've captured the carbon, it's got to be transported. It's transported in what we refer to as a supercritical state, so not as a gas and not as a liquid, but as more like a vapor. We, we don't want to pipe that a whole long ways. Our preference would be to locate our storage as close as possible to where the carbon's being captured. But where the carbon's being captured might not necessarily have the appropriate subsurface geologic reservoirs or aquifers that are suitable for that. I think a lot of the technology that's being put to work right now has to do with a lot of that geoscience, seismic engineering, reservoir engineering. It's all being put to work to identify the best candidate reservoirs for the kind of scale that we're talking about. Location, 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 just like in real estate, right? Given Alberta's vast sedimentary basin that we sit in, there's many deep horizons, deep saline aquifers that are very, very suitable for storage. It's not as simple as just punching holes, you know, you know, 2,000 meters deep and finding a, a suitable reservoir. So that's a lot of the work that we're doing right now at the very front end is just trying to define the best areas and then seeing how we can match that up with where the carbon's being captured. When we think about producing hydrogen and removing the CO2 and storing the CO2, there's both the hydrogen production and then the CO2 sequestration. It's going to be a little bit easier for us to locate that hydrogen because you'd prefer to pipeline hydrogen than you would necessarily to pipeline CO2. So, so there, there's some interesting aspects depending upon whether it's pure carbon capture or whether you're producing hydrogen that will develop. But certainly, I would say that the subsurface and understanding of the subsurface is, is critical. And it's a lot of where we spend our time and effort right now trying to find the best spots for storing large volumes of CO2. I find that stuff very interesting, actually, that subsurface science of finding what is where and how we can use it. I haven't talked about it yet on this season of the show, but it will be an episode next season is geothermal energy has a lot to do with the subsurface and finding where those heat vents and everything can be to power those geothermal plants. And just geology in general is something that doesn't get talked about very much in energy and renewable energy, but it's essential for the placement of things like solar plants and wind farms as well. Let's talk about our home province here of Alberta. We already produce a lot of wind. We certainly have an environment that's suitable for solar development as well. Geothermal opportunities look to be very good. Certainly, we don't have the same scale and capability of hydro development as a province like BC. We can continue to find new and innovative ways to generate energy, and, and I think we're going to. One of the things that you hear a lot in Alberta is we have these natural resources. That's like the core of our economy. When you talk about that, it's usually about oil and gas, right? 
But the thing is, is when we're looking at decarbonization, we have a lot of other natural resources that we can use as well. Solar is one of the best resources that Alberta and even Calgary specifically is going to excel in if we start to move towards that. We have such great resources for both solar and wind. It's important to kind of expand that mindset of natural resources from things that we can mine out of the ground to things that we can utilize from things like wind and solar. I think it's a very valid point. You know, I like to think about anything that Mother Nature produces as a precious resource, right? Whether we think about solar energy, whether we think about wind, even as we think about oil and gas, I consider it to be a precious resource. Therefore, do not waste it. Let's use it and let's use it effectively and efficiently in a way that protects the environment. One of the big pushes of the last two decades here in Canada is to try and develop an LNG industry, so exporting natural gas. The purpose there was to drive emissions down in countries across the water in order to get themselves off things like coal. Again, that idea of transitioning over time and very difficult for the world, given how much energy is consumed around the world, to pivot on a dime, right? These things are going to take time, which is where I think the targeting net zero by 2050 are, are certainly lofty goals, but goals I think that we should be working towards. Natural gas, I think, is going to continue to be part of the energy mix long term. It'll become a smaller part of the energy mix as all of the other sources of energy grow as demand continues to grow. When you say that natural gas is going to stay a pretty important part of the energy economy and the energy system, hopefully carbon capture, utilization and storage will be a big part in order to reduce emissions. What does carbon capture actually achieve and why is that so important? Carbon capture ultimately achieves the very goal that we want, the removal of CO2 from the atmosphere. The reality is just about every process to produce energy today that is remotely economic produces CO2. Hydrogen, again, is most ubiquitous in natural gas. Just chemically, it's that way. We hear a lot of talk about water electrolysis, so using renewable energy and cracking up water, but there's the challenges around using a precious resource like water in that kind of process. Hydrogen will be used to generate electricity longer term. There's all sorts of uses for hydrogen, and I think what we're going to find is that it's most readily available to us in natural gas. With the proviso, what do we do with the CO2? And removing that CO2 through a very effective carbon sequestration plan is going to be the best way to deal with it. It's effectively putting the carbon dioxide back into the ground where it came from, albeit into a different horizon in the subsurface. So take the natural gas, break it into its component parts, use that hydrogen, which is now zero emissions, and move that CO2 back to the subsurface. You said that a lot of the remotely economic sources of energy are the ones that are available right now. Things like solar especially is getting so cheap that building new solar is now cheaper than building a new natural gas or coal plant. That's different from using what we have because, of course, using a natural gas plant that we already have with carbon capture and storage is going to be cheaper than building out a whole new solar plant. But the building out of these renewable resources is getting cheaper all the time, and it's becoming more economically available. 
I believe that electrolysis is going to be a big part of generating hydrogen, but right now it is significantly more expensive than using natural gas to generate that. Technologies drive costs down. It's very true of solar. I think it's very true of wind. We'll continue to see those costs come down. You know, when we think about solar and we think about wind and we think about the battery backup system that's necessary to support that, what are all the resources that have to be mined in order to create a battery network that's large enough to deliver power to us in the middle of winter in Calgary when it's been minus 30 for three weeks? Gabriel, I think that's a great discussion point, right, is to be able to say to ourselves, okay, let's look at this on a truly full cycle basis, because I think when we look at all resources, think about lithium and cobalt and whatever new battery technologies that are going to be developed, there's significant challenges. That's a balance that we have to find in there with the ultimate goal of decarbonizing. That continues to be the focus and attention. And so, That's, I think, why you see hydrogen becoming a bigger and bigger focus. You can get rid of the CO2 now. And ultimately, you've got a source of energy that is zero emissions, similar to what we run with, you know, run natural gas in nowadays. I think it's a balance of all of those things, Avery, that'll ultimately be the answer because what resources are we taxing when we're doing that? You know, where those resources are are being mined because today lithium mining is not a nice process. Again, I'm not not suggesting that we shouldn't be pursuing those. I think they're all part of the mix. That's especially true with batteries, most of all. There are a few issues with solar and wind, of course, as well, mostly in the actual disposal of those at end of life. But the mining of the chemicals in batteries is definitely one of the biggest issues with that process. And I did an episode earlier in the show with LiCycle, who is recycling batteries and pulling the lithium, the cobalt, the nickel back out, which is also an option, but it's not to the scale that we can use it to mass produce the batteries that we need yet. We do have to move on it so fast and these challenges are, it's so much to deal with all at once. Good point, me. It is a lot of challenges. There is a lot to deal with, but we are figuring out solutions to these problems every day. Companies around the world are working to solve the battery problem, and all of these problems are being worked on constantly. That is the solution. It isn't one thing. It is having the will to jump into things that we don't yet fully understand. We need that courage to move forward when there are still question marks, because if we wait until we have it all figured out, We will never get started, and we will be much too late. We just have to get started. We have to. But, you know, even as we say that, we also recognize that that takes a lot of energy. (laughs) So where does that energy come from, right? And it's a sort of almost circuitous argument that we have, you know, we need energy to create energy and to recycle, you know, we need energy again. And is there enough energy? And that's why I, I continue to argue for The mix as we make that transition in longer term, we will transition to cleaner and cleaner sources uh, of energy, unlike we've had before where energy was coming from coal or natural gas. That will change. That's, you know, we're starting to see that evolve here in the province of Alberta, where there's obviously been a big move from coal generating facilities to natural gas generating facilities. And that is going to be a massive reduction already, CO2 emissions in the province. It's now taking it to that next step, even out of our natural gas being combusted to take that CO2 and sequester that, you know, we we can really be decarbonized. 
to see how fast things are moving is really good to see as well. Do you think that carbon capture utilization and storage can be used and implemented on these fossil fuel generation sources to reduce those emissions completely so that if we need to use fossil fuels, will that carbon capture allow us to do that on a carbon neutral basis so that we can keep using them? You know, I think that's clearly the challenge that's in front of us. So the province is going through a process right now of encouraging the development of what they call these hubs and clusters, where you'd ultimately have multiple emitters that would ultimately be tied in through a pipeline network to storage facilities. Basically, it would ensure that companies don't have an excuse but to capture the carbon and actually put it away because there will be a place for that. You know, like your garbage collection at home, right? We don't have an excuse anymore. There's recycling facilities here in in Calgary. We basically separate out our waste, our household waste, right? It's the same sort of thing that's happening from an industry perspective where we're saying, okay, what do we do with the carbon dioxide? Well, if we create a network of trunk lines, distribution systems, and a network of storage facilities, then there's no question anymore. We can put this stuff somewhere. When you look at an area like the Alberta Industrial Heartland, clearly there's a significant CO2 emissions, but there's a ton of innovation that's going on when you look at Shell's Quest project, when you look at the Alberta Carbon Trunk Line. You're seeing all of that technology and drive by industry come to bear there. The big thing is ensuring that we have places to store that. And then we can truly say this is a zero emissions process that we've got going here in the province. It's becoming even more important for the consumers who are buying products, the voters who are voting in politicians and the investors who are supporting board members. All of these people who have influence are starting to care about it even more. So getting to that point where you can use it as a selling point is a big asset for companies. To the extent that industries, you know, want to locate to places where there are carbon capture and storage facilities available to them, they're going to locate there because that's just good business. We want to be able to attract business that's zero emission and it can be zero emission because we can put that CO2 to the extent that it can be captured. And so I think that's an important part of what governments need to do is to encourage the environment to evolve such that we are creating an environment where industries want to come here because from an environmental perspective, we've placed a high level of importance on sequestering carbon dioxide. What do you think about direct air capture for the future? Is that something that we're going to keep using even once we start to implement renewable resources where we're not producing as much carbon dioxide? Are we going to keep using direct air capture with the sole purpose of pulling out CO2 in order to kind of better the global environment? Direct air capture could be deployed in areas where Maybe there isn't significant industrial development, but maybe there is concern about emissions generally, right? Places like Alberta, where we're obviously significantly industrialized, probably won't need direct air capture because we'll actually be pulling the CO2 right off of the processes themselves. Certainly one of the questions I think that we have to answer over time is, is there a right level of CO2 in the atmosphere, right? Like, like do we know what that is? If we have zero parts per million in the atmosphere, what does that mean? 
Yes, it's true that we don't know the quote-unquote proper amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And I'm not responding to Greg here because he's not trying to excuse fossil fuel use. I just think it's an important point to make. We don't know the right amount of CO2 that should be in the atmosphere, but we do know that what we have now is not it. We've increased the concentration of carbon in our atmosphere by almost 50% since the dawn of industry, and we are now facing the consequences of that through drastic climate change. So that's it. I just wanted to make sure that you didn't get the wrong idea from what Greg said, because we absolutely do need to reduce CO2 emissions immediately. But continued use of carbon capture could cause an imbalance if overused, in the wild case that we overreact to climate change, which is definitely not what's happening now. To the extent that someone like a Bill Gates or a Murray Edwards is successful with these direct air capture, I think it's going to be deployed in a whole lot of different places. When you look at the cost of that versus the cost of direct capture of CO2 off of a flu stack, you know, industry is going to want to make the most economic decision. Now, the overlay on that, there's now an environmental question, an ESG question. At the end of the day, where direct air capture fits in the overall mix of all of these carbon capture technologies. Usually, when we look at some of these technologies and get a sense of where this is going in the future, if it's going to be around at all, is usually a pretty easy question to answer. For direct air capture, not necessarily for carbon capture in general, I think it's kind of a question mark if we're going to actually continue to use that. I think it's really cool that we can actually pull a specific harmful chemical out of the air and maybe that will actually evolve into other things like other chemicals that are harmful. But it's a kind of a big question of whether we're going to keep using direct air CO2 capture for the future. And I think that's a really interesting question, too. As the world evolves and populations grow and industry grows, Canada does everything in its power to drive down its carbon emissions. How do we think about other countries that are producing high levels of emissions and what impact does that have on us? Because emissions don't stay within the country that they're produced in, right? So do we think about direct air capture on the west coast of Canada to do our level best to ensure that the atmosphere is as clean as possible? Maybe that's part of the mix. I don't, I, I don't know. It's certainly an interesting technology. It's just a question of who's going to be paying for direct air capture, right? Is it going to be government? Is, you know, who, who's it going to be? It'll be interesting to follow along for the rest of this transition through the next multiple decades. Well, I think that's most of kind of the longer answer questions I had for you. I just have a couple shorter ones that I want you to answer kind of as fast as you can. I'll give it my best. <laughs> okay, perfect. My first question is disregarding natural gas. Well, which is your favorite? Just in general, which is your favorite? Solar or wind? Solar. I have a farm just south of Calgary and I've got a big building that's south facing obviously a lot of square footage on that south-facing building, absolutely ideal for solar. I, I think it's going to be part of my mix here on the farm. The question obviously is the cost. I need to understand that. But, and, and when I say that, I say that from a full life cycle perspective, because as you mentioned earlier, you know, these panels don't last forever. You know, you have to think about all of those pieces, but solar was my, was my number one choice. Yeah, that's great to hear. My second question is policy technology or economics? Which is most important? 
technology. Obviously, when you look at uh, the content of this podcast, it doesn't take you long to figure out that technology is my favorite as well. Yeah. Well, you know, to me, that's ingenuity, right? It's about figuring out new ways to do things that create a better environment. And I think to the extent that we allow our brain power to work and we're focused on the right goals, technology will figure it out. Technology is one thing that's kind of always going in the right direction too. It's always going towards our goals. It's not really swaying from those goals. Would you say climate mitigation or adaptation? So making sure that we don't reach those tipping points or adapting for the possible outcomes of those tipping points? Ah, boy. Um, Avery, I'm going to sit on the fence on this one because I think it's both. You know, when we think about climate change, certainly we believe that CO2 is a large driver of that. But are there other things as well? And I think mitigation is a recognition of our human impact on our environment. Adaptation is our response after we've done everything in our power to mitigate our impact. There's a first goal, and that's humans recognizing our impact on our environment, recognizing that, doing our level best to reduce that impact to as low as possible. Then I think we've got to adapt. I really like that answer that we need to work on the mitigation first and then the adaptation after that, following what we can do for mitigation. I think that's a great way to put it, actually. What would you say is the most important thing that one single individual person can be doing to make the world a better place for sustainability or just in general, if you want? Personal responsibility. Think about climate change, right? We think about it in a, in a global sense, right? And it's somebody else's issue. It's not. It's our issue. Yeah, it's a community issue, but community starts with personal responsibility, taking responsibility for, you know, again, coming back to that we talked about recycling, thinking about what you throw away versus what you recycle, right? What you compost. And that to me is a, at a very individual level. You have a personal responsibility to this earth. I think if we take personal responsibility for things and recognize that we do have an impact, then I think that collective individual responsibility becomes a bigger action. I got to recognize that I drive a car. I got to think about that in the context of the importance of reducing emissions. Mine, along with yours, along with everybody else's, becomes this collective response. But it always comes back for me to a personal responsibility. That's a pretty powerful sentiment, and it's a great mindset to have when we're going into this. This is my last question, and it's just a little bit longer if you need a bit more time to talk about it. With everything that you're seeing in your industry and the acceleration of these new technologies and initiatives, do you think that we can decarbonize all of these sectors on a global scale in order to reach that carbon neutrality goal by 2050? I don't think it'll happen on a global scale. Open Western democracies, I think they'll make those efforts to get there. I think it's just going to be very difficult in other places of the world where maybe there isn't that same openness and freedom to challenge your government. But how do we get other countries to do that? It's very difficult, right? I think for a country like Canada, the United States, a lot of Western Europe, I think we're probably going to get there. We've demanded that of our companies from a federal policy perspective, but you're even seeing that in the investment world. It's very difficult for companies to raise capital unless they're meeting these sorts of objectives. So I think that that's going to happen. But 
What about in places in the world where you don't have that same sort of government that's committed to that sort of thing? Um, I think it's I think it's a huge challenge. That global sense and making sure that everyone is adhering to these goals and pursuing these goals to the best of their ability is definitely one of, if not the biggest challenges that we're going to face in this transition and this movement towards sustainability, renewable resources, and that decarbonization. You know, we're talking about billions of people in the world that don't have a shred of the education opportunity that we have, that don't have a shred of the healthcare don't have a shred of the access to food and housing. That's the massive challenge. What are we to say about that sort of thing, right? We got to recognize that there is an evolution happening and it's important for us then as in a Western society to reduce our emissions as much as we can, recognizing that as other parts of the world pull themselves out of poverty and into having, a, you know, as they say, a shred of the opportunity that we have, there's probably going to be a growth in emissions. And how do we balance all of that, right? Because, you know, you need to employ these kind of technologies. Well, it what if they can't? What if they don't have the ability, the facilities, the money, the education to be able to do that? You know, so there's there's lots of challenges, I think, that are are not just environmental. They're overlaid with social issues and, and much bigger global issues. So I think it's just important as a developed Western society that we've got to lead. Yeah, absolutely. Being a leader in this space is definitely something that we have to take charge of, even if we don't see the immediate benefits of that, we need to take charge and lead this transition. And we will see the benefits, even if they aren't apparent right away, there will be benefits to taking charge of this global crisis and doing our very best to make it better across the entire world, not just in our own societies. Awesome. Well, is there somewhere that people can find you and Blue X Energy to learn a bit more about this? Yeah, you bet. It's uh, bluexenergy.ca is our website. Uh, myself and my uh, co-founder, Jim Standard, our emails are on there. If people want to chat, catch up with us, talk about carbon sequestration, uh, we're certainly available to that. So yeah, we're, uh, we're available at bluexenergy.ca. Well, thank you so much, Greg, for coming on. This has been a really great conversation. I've actually learned so much about carbon capture, utilization, and storage through this. And I think a lot of the listeners will too. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing this with me. Cool. Thanks for having me, Avery. This was a good episode, another longer one, but I hope you still enjoyed it. I know this one was a lot to take in. Carbon capture is a very interesting technology because it is so specific to this problem that we have. We created these technologies for the sole purpose of solving climate change. That being said, if you wanna find out more about carbon capture, check the resources in the show notes to learn more and find Blue X Energy. Thank you for sticking through this longer episode I hope you got something out of it to have listened for this long. Remember to tell your friends, family, and coworkers about the show. Anyone you think would really enjoy it. Thank you again, stay innovative, and I'll see you next week.